Thank you, Lord. God is good, isn't he? Well, happy Father's Day to the fathers here. I just want to bless you and thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. We have our Heavenly Father as our example. And when we follow in his footsteps as the Father, as the best Father, uh, the greatest thing that we can do for our children is to raise them to know the Lord. The greatest gift that we can possibly have is that our children grow up to know the Lord. The Word says to raise our children right in the ways of the Lord so that when they grow old, they will not depart from it, right? And so the greatest gift to a father is a child that walks in the Lord and serves the Lord. And the, uh, that's a mutual gift. The child is reaping the reward of that, and the father reaps the reward of seeing their children honor God and please God. So I just honor you and thank you for all that you've done for, for me as a child and for our children here. I just want to get into his word. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for this word, and I thank you, God, that you have anointed your word. They're not just words on a page, but they are life. And so I pray they would be, Lord, just like you said, we are a tree. Lord, there is this tree, and Lord, we're these branches coming off this tree, and you're grooming us and cultivating us. You're caring for us. But there's life that's flowing. Thank you, Lord from the tree that's planted along the stream, Lord. I thank you that there is a life that is flowing through us, and Lord, fruits coming out of us. We're producing life from outside of us, Lord, from within us. And I pray, God, that your word would fertilize those seeds in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking in the last weeks about um, God doing miraculous things in us and for us, um, which we reap a benefit of. There is a benefit to what God has done for us, who has benefited from the relief and the freedom God has given you. But we've been talking recently how it's not just for us, is it? That you are not your own. Everybody, I just want you to raise your hand. I'm not my own. We are the Lord's, right? We have come into a unity with Him. We've come into a relationship with Him. Just as a husband and wife are one flesh, they are two entities, but they are one in God's eyes. And they have individual parts, but they make up one body, and we are the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom, and we are one. He is in us. We are in Him, right? So... Uh, I am not free to be my own. I am submitted to him, and he is working for me, right? He has already done everything for me, technically. It's just walking out in time. Amen. So we've been talking how our lives really are still here on the earth, not just so that we can be perfected, and then we end up in heaven suddenly perfected. Because my argument to that being the gospel, is what about the person on the battlefield who accepts Christ as his very last breath? Where was his chance to be perfected for his own sake to please God, right? Obviously, he had no time for that, right? The guy on the cross next to Jesus, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there is this, there is this point of salvation, and then there is this point of entering eternity, 
And they can actually happen very quickly, right? It can be a person right at their last breath saying, yes, Lord, I got to lead um, a 91 or 92-year-old to the Lord. He, he didn't even, wasn't even, even able to open his eyes. So that's how close he was to, to heaven. The next morning we found out, we met with him in the evening after work, and the next morning he was gone. So uh, there wasn't a chance for him to be refined and to work out his salvation. So salvation is not, we know as believers, is not something that we earn. We're not working for the Lord. We're not being perfected and doing things for the Lord to try to earn the salvation he's given us, are we? What we are doing is he is perfecting us, he is refining us, so that we become a mirror of Christ for what purpose? Just so that Jesus can look at himself and be like, wow, I look good? You think that he needs a mirror to look at in vanity? He wants to see himself in us because he, just like the sun shines against the moon, which shines against the earth. See, Christ, being the sun, shines against a, a sublight, right? Something that is not light itself, but absorbs light. And what does what? Gives light in the darkness. And in the same way, Jesus is shining upon us. We are a reflector of him, not just to reflect back in him, but to reflect into the darkness, the earth. Amen. So your life here on the earth, I'm not going to take away from the relationship and the special thing that he's doing inside you that is personal. That is not my purpose. We have all of eternity, though, to be personal with him. Do you understand that? We have all of eternity just to love him and him love us. So I don't want to minimize that, but what I want to get us to realize and be reminded of is that your life on the earth is not just you dealing with sin so that one day you're perfect and then we can enter heaven. But that when I deal with the issues inside me, when an injustice is done to me, when things are, are in my life that aren't right and God is correcting them and I'm letting him do it, what is actually happening is, is I'm beginning to shine like Christ to the world. And the world looks at me and says, wow, that's different than the rest of the world. There's something about that person. I see darkness everywhere, but just like a light, you realize a light can be seen miles and miles and miles away. You can see light so far away. The darker it gets, in fact, the brighter even a dim light becomes. And so what God wants in us is to be light in the earth. I want you to say that out loud. I'm called to be light in the darkness. So we've been talking, and last week I got into how there was this oil that was required in the lamps of the ten virgins, and what we looked at in Matthew 25 is that these ten virgins were waiting for the bridegroom. They were believers waiting for Christ to return, and there was... 50%, right? Five of them were, were ready. They had oil. They had gone through the process of getting the oil. There's a crushing that happens to us, right? There's a dealing with issues. Every single time that something is done to you and you do what God wants you to do instead of what you want to do, something precious happens from that moment, doesn't it? There is a precious oil when you did it God's way and not your way. 
Something valuable comes out of that. You begin to change. You didn't even make the attempt to change. You just said, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to do what you said you want me to do because I don't feel like I can do it, and my way is, is not working, and their way is not working, and I'm not going to turn to all these other sources, and I'm just going to trust you and trust your word as old and as archaic as your word is, right? That's what the world says. And yet it's just as true today and just as alive today as when the Lord imagined it in his heart before time began. And what happens is there's this precious oil that is made. But what happened is the, the five foolish virgins, what our word says is that they suddenly realize, wow, things are burning up. I don't have enough oil to survive. And the Lord comes in Matthew 25 he welcomes the five who were ready and had been prepared into the kingdom. And the other five, he turns away and says, I don't know you. It's because they weren't concerned about having a light. They weren't concerned. If your life is not, is flippant. Some people try to say that's the world. That's the unbelievers and the believers. I don't think so, because what unbeliever is waiting for Christ to return? What unbeliever once had light? You realize they all had light initially. All 10 of them, for a little while, had light. In fact, all 10 of them had oil. It doesn't burn without oil. So somewhere along the way, they let Christ do a work, and then at some point, they became careless. They became flippant. They became less concerned, became self-concerned and less concerned about things that mattered. And what I want us to get is that our godly actions give glory to God. Our actions, they are meant to be a form of light so that others can see and glorify God. Uh, basically, perhaps uh, people may know us in the past as bad or proud or selfish or easily angered, uh, or they uh, saw us in a certain, you know, fleshly human way. But when a person sees us change and that oil is produced and a light begins to shine after we believe in Christ, we begin to shock them and, and they look at us and they say, there's something about this person that I used to know. There's something happening and changing. And what ha can happen is, see, if the world sees that you sparked and changed and you had a light, but then it begins to go dim, the world are, it, they are sheep. Who knows that the world are sheep, right? We're all followers, right? There's literally studies of this, even worldly studies, right, of how an animal will just follow another animal right over a cliff, right? I think we call them lemmings, right? They just follow each other. Is that how you say it? Lemmings, right? And they just follow each other right off the cliff because that's where everybody else is going, right? Who's ever stood in a line that you didn't need to stand in? And then suddenly you realize this is, there's no point to this line, just where everybody else was standing. And I watched an interesting study where... Um, <laughs> I don't remember if they had like a bell ring or something, but like you're waiting in a in like a doctor's office and this bell would ring and this person would just like stand up and then just sit down. Now, everybody else looks at them like, are you like, what's that guy doing? But little by little, as new people come in and the olds go out, 
All they know is what they learned. And before you know it, the entire room is standing to attention to this bell ringing because that's what they think they're supposed to do. And so the thing is that we must be sharp. I was saying last week, we must be sincere about the word. We must find what the word says. We must find what does God want? What is God's idea of right and wrong? What is God's, uh, God's definition of words? We're trying to redefine everything suddenly today, but yet God's word has never changed. We can go right to the word. I know what love is. I don't need a new definition, and you don't need to tell me what it is because my word tells me what it is. Amen. So the wise versus the foolish, what happens is because the world is looking and watching you, when your light that once was bright begins to go dim, it's not that God is so angry with you. But rather, it shows that you begin to not care about him. But what happens is the world looks and says, oh, that's all a believer is. It's somebody who attends church. It's somebody who acts religious, right? We've all seen this. And what happens is, is when, when somebody begins to think of God in, in a systematic way, in a religious way, what happens? Little by little, we watch him incrementally just the light goes out, right? When they begin to give into compromise, it's just a matter of time. What God really was dealing with is that they didn't, it really showed the core of their heart, which is that I just don't care enough to be uh, doing and be diligent about the things that matter to God. It may sound harsh, but that's exactly what it was. It was about this apathy and this laziness and a carefreeness, and God um, talks so many times through the word about being diligent, and even he says, look at the ant, right? Remember the scriptures, the Lord says, look at the ant, how diligent they are. What he's really doing in telling us is that it's not like God's in heaven saying, you know, listen, I'm a very, very specific God, and it's my way or the highway. Yes, I could actually say that, but that's not quite what he's doing. What he's saying is, is if you don't do it my way, the current is so strong. The flow against you is so strong that the moment that you begin to just get a little carefree, the moment you begin to get a little relaxed, what happens, right? We've all seen in our lives. I don't need to convince you or preach to you about this. Who's ever been in a strong current? I've mentioned this many times before. If you're not swimming against it, it's pushing you. And you're going to have to swim much harder than it's actually pushing you to get through it, right? So what the Lord is really warning us of is that if you are not sharp and diligent and focused, what's going to happen is that your light's going to begin to go out. You're going to be no light to the world. Everyone's going to look at you and be confused and say, oh, that's what a believer is. First of all, they're going to say, why would I want that? And second of all, even if they say, I do want that, they're going to be following the example, really, of someone who doesn't even know God. And that's not my words. That's what the word says. He says, I don't know you. So now there's a person reflecting God, right? They have a lamp for a season. And the reflection is really of someone who doesn't even know him. How sad. I want you to keep looking in your word with me. I'm going to just kind of move quickly. I have a pretty simple sermon, but probably a lot of scripture for a simple sermon. 
So I'll just get through what I can, and we'll go from there. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God has given us, everybody, let's read this out loud, Second Peter 1, verse 3, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We need to know that first, that everything we need, God has given us. There is no excuse to live a less than godly life, because I live by my word. I don't live by my opinions. I can't sit here with us and say, well, you know, it's complicated, right? People love to say things like that. Well, life is complicated. It's complicated. Well, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what they've been through. It's not as simple as that. I understand why they're a sinner. What we need to see is that it's not only not pleasing to God, but it's actually a cancer to them, but it's also a cancer to the body, and it must be removed. We cannot live that way. God has actually given us everything we need for living a godly life. There is no excuse. Now, does that mean we don't have love and grace? Of course not, that we don't love each other and give each other grace upon grace upon grace, but we should be encouraging each other. We should be building each other up. We should be reminding each other, listen, I know you're going through something, and I know you feel like you can't make it any longer, and I know that sin is calling at you and wanting to bring you back, but you need to understand something. God's given you everything you need to live a godly life. And it says, in view of all this, verse 5, I want you to say this out loud with me again. Make every effort. So the word says that it's going to require what? Effort. If you are flipping about the gospel, then your life will be flippant. That's, that's just, it's not hard to figure out. If we are not making the effort, there is an effort being made against you. The enemy has been making an effort against you since the moment you were born. Why? Because he hates God. Now, the enemy is no match for Christ, is he? But he is a match for me without Christ, who has been in that boxing match and lost. I have too many times. But when I rely on Christ and rely on his word, the enemy is no match for Christ. And when I'm in Christ, he's no match for me. So the Bible says to make every effort to respond to God's promises, and then it goes on to say that we need his faith and moral excellence and self-control and godliness and love for everyone. It's funny how people say, oh, those rules and, and laws and regulations, that's Old Testament. Fine. Even if you wanted to draw a hard line between the Old Testament and Matthew, you know from Matthew for, through Revelation, do you know how many times Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John tells us to do things you don't want to we don't we can call it rules and laws and regulation or we can just call it life like i've said so many times the stop sign there i could look at that as a restriction or i could look at that as love i could say wow my town actually cares about me they put a stop sign up here they realize this is a dangerous spot there didn't used to be a stop sign it used to be a yield or just it used to be fend for yourself and they were like wow you know this is a dangerous spot here we care about you so much here's restriction wow and many of you you pull up and go i don't need the stop sign it's not serving any per people in the mall Right? They drive through the mall, like, these don't count. As soon as they pull into the mall, then all the rules go out their windows, right? There's no rules in the mall. 
These don't count. I see cops driving through there, and I always wonder, like, it looks just as red as the other stop signs. <laughs> I'm always wondering, like, what you're thinking. He says, so make these efforts. Make an effort to live like this, to be excellent in self-control and godliness and have love. He says, verse 9, those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. Just like the ten virgins, they were, for a season, they could see. And then they became short-sighted. They did not look far enough ahead. They did not prepare. I could go on and on about this. I, this is not the main point of my sermon. This is really just the beginning. But I could go on and on that Jesus told us so many times that failure to plan is planning to fail. All right, who knows that old saying? And Jesus said it in so many ways. If you're not looking ahead and you're not reading my word and, and letting it soak in and spending time with believers and not just spending time, you're spending time with psychics and spending time with Netflix and spending time with your friends drinking on the weekend, and then you're like, why is my life a mess? Or are you surrounding yourself with believers who are telling you things like, listen, you need to make an effort to respond to God's promises. Are you reading your word and seeing these type of scriptures and saying, wow, Lord, forgive me that I've made too much effort for the world or I've let the enemy make its effort against me too long and I need to make the effort, Lord, to be uh, focused on you and focused on the kingdom and not just focused on my kingdom. And it says that they're short-sighted or blind, forgetting. Everybody say forgetting. They forgot that they were cleansed from their old sins. Again, Second Peter, he's not talking to the world versus the believer. He's talking to believers. How many unbelievers have been cleansed from their sins? That wouldn't make sense. That's a very odd gospel then. Then why do anything? Why change? Why do anything at all, ever? If, it's, if we've all been just cleansed and we're all going to go to heaven and all dogs go to heaven, then what is, why did Second Peter compel us to make every effort? He said they forgot that they've been cleansed from their old sins. So verse 10, so dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. So what I began this sermon with is this. I am not talking about where salvation began. It is supernatural, and it is something that is done outside of your reality. It is literally Christ said to the man on the cross when he said, you know, this is, don't you realize who this is? He just had this acknowledgement that this is Christ, and I'm a sinner, and I deserve to be here, and he doesn't. And Jesus says, you'll be in my kingdom today. So I'm not talking about where's the spark of salvation and where salvation and the cleansing. See, that's the cleansing. But we must not forget that we've been cleansed. We must realize I've been cleansed. Everybody say, I've been cleansed for a purpose. And your purpose is not just to remain clean to go to heaven. It was kind of like they used to say, you know, the youth groups, if they could just keep, if, if all that the youth pastor did was just keep the kids from sleeping around, he succeeded. And that's a failure. That's not true. They should not want to sleep around because they're so in love with the Lord and they want to do things the Lord's way, not just that they don't want to sin. You see the difference. And so the word says, do these things and you will never fall away. Who wants to never fall away? 
then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can see that the benefits for us personally doing things God's way, they're obvious, right? We have obvious benefits. There's, I'm living a better life. I'm living a healthy life. I'm pleasing God. There's rewards for me. So that's all obvious. But the consequences of me not doing things God's way are unbearable. I can't even fathom. I can't even think about not doing it his way. The consequences are I can't even think about it. And yet, there's such a greater purpose for us. Dealing with sin, submitting to God, and handling every situation scripturally is for the greater benefit of lighting the way for others. I want to say that again. All these benefits that are obvious that we have in Christ and the consequences I can't imagine, and yet there's a greater purpose for us. That everything you're dealing with, everything you're going through, as you're handling each and every situation God's way, the greater benefit is actually that you are lighting the way for another, for someone else. The only Christ that they're going to see is through you. Do you realize, has anybody in here ever got, did you get saved by Jesus coming into your room yourself? Now, maybe you've had visions and you've had dreams that pointed you to Christ, but did anybody have a biblical account? You know, Jesus, the long hair, the sandals, the long robe, the whole thing. Anybody get saved by Christ? Did anybody hear the gospel from someone else? And something about it tugged on your heart and said, I want to know that. But it's not just that you're telling me it. It's because I trust you who's telling me. Would you have ever accepted the gospel if you didn't trust the person who told you? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? So you realize that actually the message bearer is just as important as the message itself. So the fact is that we can say, you know, I love God, and yet if I don't live like him, we, don't think, we think it doesn't matter. We think that's only hurting me. That's just me losing rewards in heaven. We come up with all these weird gospels. I'll just have less in heaven. How foolish. That's why Jesus is so harsh with the five foolish versions, because what, hopefully that made sense, the five foolish virgins, because it was not just about them. What he's really saying is that you think that this was just about you, but I had a little blip of time through you to potentially to witness to millions upon millions of people. In fact, I was talking, I had a conversation last week, I was just reminded of a revelation that I had, which is that the devil loves abortion. When I had, suddenly, I'm like, wait a second, the devil wants to send millions upon millions upon, really, if you really do the math, it's over a billion we try to say like 40 million and come up with these numbers, but it's way, way, way bigger. I had read these statistics like 10 years ago, and it's over a billion children have been aborted. But the devil wants to send millions or a billion people to heaven instantly? That's okay with him? You realize abortion is not from God. Who thinks abortion's from Satan? Anybody willing to raise your hand? So if it's from Satan, Satan wants you to go to heaven? Suddenly I had this revelation. Wow. Wait a minute. This is not about heaven and hell. 
This is that one life on this earth can affect millions themselves. He doesn't know who the Billy Graham is, so he's just aborting. You remember? I, I can prove it to you. He didn't know who Moses was, so what did he do? They heard a prophecy that there's going to be a Savior. So they killed everybody two years and, and younger. Same thing happens in Herod's time. Herod hears the prophecy. There's going to be a Savior, Jesus Christ. So just like Moses, who survived, even though they aborted all those people, they abort him again, and Jesus is taken into Egypt, prophetically, the picture of Moses being Jesus. He is saved, but the abortion happened, so the devil's trying. Do you see this? Because one single life is not just about a single life, but it is about millions of lives. When we live our life reflecting the light of Christ, it is not about you. The Lord, yes, there are rewards in heaven, but I think the reward is not, hey, Lord, look at how I overcame this sin. No, the, Lord, the reward is, look, Lord, how I shine for you. Look how I gave selflessly of myself to the world around me. I don't think there's going to be, in he I, I, this is my opinion, but I don't think there are any rewards in heaven for overcoming sin. I don't. It's kind of like rewarding a car for driving straight on the road. That's what it was designed to do. But now loving a car because it didn't just drive straight, but it took me all these places. It did all these things for me. Now I'm going to really love this car because it did some things. It didn't just do what it's required to do already, but it did so much more. See, because our lives are the only light in this darkness. You are the only Christ that the world is ever going to meet. I love dreams and visions. I love when they enhance the word, right? Who has had, you know, a dream, something spiritual in your dream, and you're like, wow, Lord, I just love you. It doesn't, it's not going to shift my gospel, right? It's not going to make me, you know, suddenly believe in Christ because I see Jesus, because you could have a dream of Jesus and Buddha being best friends, and, and that wouldn't be God, would it be? <laughs> would it? Right? We have weird dreams, too. So I'm saying I'm not going to live and make directions by dreams, but I love when the Lord's in my dreams. Who's ever had a dream where the Lord's in your dream? Anybody? I've had many of them. I love that. I love when he speaks to me in my dreams. But it really was that I heard, and I grew up in a Christian home, but there was a guy from Florida. This preacher came to a church in Poughkeepsie. And just suddenly, that day, I can't even tell you what his words were, but the words that day, man, they hit my ears, and they sunk down deep into my heart that day. And I said, Lord, I want to know you. And I was living in a Christian home, and I knew that day is when I got saved. That was the day I got saved. I'm li literally 15 years old, being born and raised in a Christian home, but something super, that's when the seed got planted deep in the ground, began to sprout. And I went home. I took all this secular music. I could have just thrown it in the garbage, but I just didn't think that was enough. No one told me what to do. I had never seen it before. YouTube didn't exist yet. I had no videos to watch. I had no circle. 
I was barely in a, a Christian circle, just a few maybe, you know, parents' friends. I didn't really have a lot of young friends, so no influence, and I felt like I needed to smash these secular albums, and then I felt like I needed to get some of my dad's gasoline and burn them, and that's exactly what I did. Something broke that day. Something changed. I became destined for the greater purpose of not just that, what I realized is not just me, but that God's got a plan and a purpose for my life. Amen. I want to just make a few statements just in case I can't bring it together here in the next few minutes. So let me just make these statements, and this is the whole focus of this. I want you to understand something is that there used to be in the Old Testament what was called the tabernacle. Everybody remember the tabernacle? Now what this was, it was kind of a mock-up of what would be the temple one day, all right? It was a traveling temple, like a circus, all right? It got set up wherever they went, and it got torn down, and they moved on to another place, and it was built with fabric and tent-like material. They used animal skins to make it waterproof so that they could go inside, have this experience with God, and then move on. And what happened is, is the tabernacle eventually became a building called the temple, all right? The temple pointed towards who? Jesus Christ. Jesus ultimately became the temple. The Bible says here, and I'm just going to look here now, in the book of John, chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. John 2, 19, he would destroy the temple and then in three days raise it up. And they're looking at him confused But it says in verse 20, the Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, something else happened. That temple, when Jesus died and went into heaven, got transferred. Everybody say the temple got transferred. What happened is is the temple became no longer a building. Jesus abolished the building with his body. In fact, uh, 70 years later, that temple was torn down and it has never been rebuilt since. Do you know your, your Bible history, your church history? But the real temple was not torn down, was it? When it rose again, we rose again with him. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, You are the temple, New King James Version, of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Your body, New King James Version, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to say this out loud. My body is the temple of of the Holy Spirit, who is in us. And it says, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So let me just give you a picture. I know I'm saying some things faster because I want to get this picture. The world was without light. The world was without God. It was a dry, arid place. Even the picture that they were in the wilderness Suddenly, God rescues them from the world, rescued them from Egypt, and God said, we're going to create a way for you and I 
to have a relationship, to come together. And so what happened is, is he built this mock temple, the tabernacle, and inside of that place was the presence of God. Everybody say the presence of God was in the tabernacle. When Solomon built the physical temple, the Spirit of God came and dwelled inside of the physical temple. Jesus went into the River Jordan to be baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in him. Acts chapter 2, we've received the blood of Christ, we've been washed in his blood, we've been baptized with water, and the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in us. Which means all of the aspects of the tabernacle, which became the temple, were in Christ, and now they are in us. Everybody following me? Everybody okay? That means that within that place was the presence of God. So within you is what? Do you realize you are carrying around the physical? We call it spiritual like it's ghostly, like, you know, it's some sort of cloud type of thing. We just don't understand, so we, we picture spiritual like that. Do you think that God, even though God says, I am spirit, he is, but do you think his definition is our definition of Casper the ghost? He is physical, we just don't, we just can't understand it in this, in our physical realm, but I don't think God, who made us in his image, is transparent. I mean, he can do things that we can't understand, like Jesus passed through the wall in his new body, but yet he also ate. So he's not a ghost. They thought he was a ghost, and then he said, go ahead and touch my wounds. What am I trying to say here? The point is that the God is physical. You just can't understand it in this realm, but you are carrying around the actual presence of God within you. Do you realize the responsibility of that? It was so severe in the Old Testament that when they mishandled his presence, what would happen? They died. When they were careless and they tried to bring the ark back and, and brought it in the wrong way, the men who touched the ark died. The Bible says here that we are the temple of God which contains all the aspects within the temple. The very presence of God was in the ark. The ark is in you. And your life is supposed to be a reflection of the presence of God. In fact, there's no confusion. We don't have to say, well, this is some sort of hyper, super Christianity. This is like when you've graduated. He says... The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you are not your own. This is to every believer. Anybody who has been saved has also received the Holy Spirit. If you've received the Holy Spirit, then you apply this verse to you. And the Bible says this, Within that tabernacle and temple, 
there was something called the menorah. Is everybody following me okay? I'm, I know I'm giving you like a whole bunch of information suddenly, but I want to get this out. Anybody have the picture of the menorah? All right, it's got the seven. We think of them as candlesticks. They're not candles. They were like almond uh, blossoms, and they held oil, and they would put a wick in there and light it, and then the oil would burn and light the secret place, the holy place. Inside of the tabernacle then became temple. There was no windows. It was so dark. In fact, if you read it, they layered it. Like I said, there was fab there was they created fabric and then they put goat skin over the outside. There was zero light in that place except for the light from the menorah. And the picture is of Christ lighting the way in the darkness into God's presence. In fact, just very quickly, I'm, you don't even have to look these up, Mariah, because it's going to be quick here. But the Lord is my, the lights of my darkness, Second Samuel, Revelation. In the, even in, in the very, very end, when the Lord restores everything back to a new heaven and new earth, it says there will be no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. You guys know that. In the transfiguration, they looked at Jesus, and he was metamorphosized. Remember? He was metamorphosed into his heavenly image, and it says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. John 8, he said, I'm the light of the world. John 9, I am the light of the world. Well, something happened. Jesus, the light, leading in the darkness us into the presence of God, right? Jesus led you into the presence of God. A light was shown. You were in the dark. You were just wandering around, right? This is what we are in the world. We're just doing what we feel is right, what we think is right. And suddenly a light shines and says, there's God over there, and I want him. I want to follow him. Something happens, and that there's a transfer that he takes his image, and he puts it inside of you, which means your new job, say my new job, is to shine, leading the way for others in the darkness to the presence of God. I know I had a whole bunch of setup to get you there, but isn't that incredible? You realize what an incredible responsibility that is? So when we just go, when we say, I love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, I love you. It's Sunday. I love you, Lord. Monday, I got things to do, or, or worse, you know, going and sinning and doing worldly things. Do you know what a mockery of God that is? Wow, once you, like, hear the seriousness of it, like, wow. Like the pr so presence of God on Sunday, Satan come and dwell me on Monday. And the world, all they see is the same darkness with a badge that says Christ. That's why our lives, they must reflect the life that is inside of us. It must. It's like I said about the car. All right, it is, this is not something that we're even, that we're like saying, God, I'll be good and I'll shine for you because I want your rewards. We must just say, I need to do it because it's what you've designed me to do. 
is just who I am. If I don't shine the light of God out of me, I have no purpose. My life is meaningless without being a light leading people into the presence of God. Anything else I do, the Bible calls it wood, hay, and stubble. But the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, you, re- you start doing your study, man, isn't the Bible amazing? What I find hard to do is when I begin to study the Word and I have to condense it down to a sermon, it starts becoming, remember those things when you needed to write a report that we used to do as kids, and you write a topic and you circle it, and then you draw a line to it. It starts looking like a spider. Well, the idea is when you start doing that with the Word of God, it looks like the synapses of the brain. (laughs) Anybody ever seen an image of that? It starts looking like, have you ever looked at the airline uh, lines around the world, and you're like, how do these guys not hit each other? You start seeing where the planes go. Has anybody ever seen a picture of the, of the map of, like, where the planes fly? And you're just literally. Well, that's what the word does. It starts all connecting to itself. Everything that the, that the temple was built with was gold, silver, and precious stones. Everything precious. The menorah was built out of solid gold from top to bottom. It was not gold-plated like things we have today. It was probably worth like billions of dollars. We are the light of the world. I'm going to get more into it next week. But I just want to leave you with this. I carry the presence of God. You carry the presence of God. You were redeemed, and the Bible says you were purchased with a price, a great price, his own blood. We have many, many, many gifts and freedoms in knowing him. You have so many gifts, so many freedoms, in fact, in knowing him, don't we? He gives us so many, and yet all of those things are secondary. On this earth, our purpose is singular which is to let Christ illuminate our own hearts. It exposes the issues in us so that we're not stuck there giving a false or a weird example. We can call that even strange fire. We could get more into that another time to the world. But so that the world looks at us and says, I was in darkness and now I've seen the light. Amen. Looking at you. Matthew 5, I see you, but I see Christ. And the Bible says in Matthew 5 that they begin to glorify God by seeing your life. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this word. I just pray you plant it down inside of us. Lord, I pray that you put it like a good seed, Lord, in good ground, that it produces life, Lord, that it produces fruit out of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God.